Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of June 18th, 2018. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Slate's Nick Green to talk about the opening week of the World Cup, wherein Argentina, Germany, and Brazil all came away without victories. Fox Sports sent some people to Russia and left others behind to call games from a studio. An instant replay, well, instant replay exists, for better or for worse. Our colleague Jim Newell will also be here to talk about Brooks Kepka's back-to-back wins at golf's U.S. Open and the awesome spectacle of the game's greatest players complaining that the sport they play is too hard. And finally, we'll complete our delicious soccer-golf-soccer sandwich by interviewing Ken Bensinger about his new book, Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio this week is Stefan Fatsis, the author of the book's Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. And why do you even need to be in the World Cup, Stefan, if you can blow the whistle on the world's biggest sports scandal? That's the greatest victory of all. We win. USA. Raise the banner. Wins the World Cup. Before we get started, Stefan, I want to thank Tiddlywinks239 for the five-star review on iTunes. Review title, best podcast ever. Review text, love you guys. I love Tiddlywinks239 too, way more than the other Tiddlywinkses. At this point, 137 is pretty good Tiddlywinks. <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to stop begging for five-star reviews at, at this point. But, uh, although if you want to give us a five-star review... Well, I, I would not f- be upset. I figure if you haven't given us a five-star review yet, just give us a four-star review. Oh, no. Just for all the four-star people out there that don't want to give no. us five. No, 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 no. Really? It's five no, 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 or nothing no, no. with yes. you, Josh? Yes. Five-star reviews. All right. Uh, but thanks to everyone who's helped us out so far. It'll help more listeners discover the show, which is a very good thing for us. Uh, don't ever listen to Stefan is my advice before we start this episode. On Sunday in Moscow... Mexico and Germany were scoreless in the first half of their World Cup clash when this happened. Impressive range and control from Andres Cantor of Telemundo, even by Andres Cantor standards. The goal would hold up for Mexico. Uh, they beat the defending World Cup champs one to nothing in what may have been the greatest victory in the history of the Mexican men's national team. That was not the only surprising result in the first four days of the World Cup. 
Iceland got a draw with Lionel Messi's Argentina. Switzerland also managed to draw Neymar and Brazil. And those weren't the only great games either. Spain 3, Portugal 3 with uh, Ronaldo scoring a hat-trick. That was not bad either. Joining us now to discuss the World Cup is Nick Green, who's a contributing writer for Slate. Nick, hello. The World Cup? Hi. The World Cup, it's good, Nick. It's good. That's, it's very good. I'm enjoying it. Except for Morocco, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, <laughs> Russia. Those were not Those good. had their moments. As, as in they were moments that transpired and were broadcast and we watched them. So they uh, had their moments. So one of the pieces that you wrote over the weekend, Nick, was trying to figure out how many O's go in a goal like uh, Chucky Lozano's uh, historic goal for Mexico. Can you kind of walk us through the process there? Yeah, well, um, for that goal, watched it again and, and put the closed captioning on and saw how many O's the goal call received via the uh, closed caption service on Twitter and over the air on Telemundo, and that got 54 O's. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good goal. It was a great goal. Yeah, I, um, I, 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 I kind of dispute your methodology, though. I think relying on the closed caption person might not be the best way to approach this. I think this yeah, really, do the job yourself. This is a math problem, Nick. This is, a, this is, this is solvable. It's objective. Do you have a stopwatch? The data is sound. Someone put the a data stopwatch is sound. No, no. The process is pure. Uh, <laughs> it was 54 O's. Uh, if you dispute that, I think we can uh, consult VAR on this, but I think I'm correct. And uh, the the goal stands. All right. I'm going to put a stands. stopwatch on, and then I'm going to count. I'm just going to say O for five okay. seconds, and then we will do the math based on how long Contour Wait. held his O. Nick already timed it. What was the I, what, what was the time? He timed the length, but he didn't time how many O's per second. It was uh thirteen point one seconds, I believe, the first goal call he gave, which I think he was holding back because it was only the thirty fifth minute, <laughs> mm-hmm. and he probably assumed Germany would equalize, um, so he didn't want to kind of go all out on the goal on that first one. But it was that's, pretty nice. That's right, two I'm O's gonna, per second. That's two O's per second. But I'm gonna I'm gonna turn on my stopwatch. I'm just gonna go. What's a good speed here? Oh 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 oh. Is that too fast? That's perfect. Okay, ready? Here we go. Oh, 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 oh. I think that was 18 O's, Stefan. In five seconds. So in 15 seconds, that would be 18 times I think it was 13 seconds. I know. So 54 in 15 seconds. So in 13 seconds, it would be slightly fewer O's. 18 times 13 divided by five is 46.8. All right, Nick. So we got 47 for uh, the first goal call. And then I was like listed twice on the screen. So does that mean that it should be 47 times two, 94 O's instead of 54 O's? Well, it's a little confusing because the um, the goal just kind of stayed on the screen. I think the person got sick of typing it over again. <laughs> so it just stayed on the on the screen there. So I think 54 is basically as much as you're ever going to get. And I, I'm comfortable. I think that's within the... Uh within the uh, margin of error, 54, 47. Okay, well... Good job, closed captioner. I mean, the the methods that we used were just like totally sound and scientifically Scientific. ri- rigorous. Yeah. And so um, I'm, I'm confident that we have the correct answer here. Um, Stefan, this was a really surprising result. Um, Mexico, not a team you're particularly fond of, given no. their rivalry with the United States of America. What did you make of that game? What I make of a lot of games that I see Mexico play against sort of top six teams in the world is that they tend to rise to the occasion. They look like they belong among 
the top teams. The they, top mon- shafts With the shafts yes. And, you know, when we play, we being the United States, when we play Germany, we don't look like we belong on the pitch most of the time. Mexico looked like they belonged in that game yesterday. We belong on the field, but not the pitch. Um, and I don't know what that says about Mexico, if it says something about the United States, but well, the, the Mexico neg- looked like a team that it should be advancing to the quarterfinals of this tournament, at least. The negative view of that, Nick, would be that Mexico is a perennial underachiever. Yes. If we want to if we want to rag on Mexico a bit. Um, perennial, maybe. Uh, the, this year, I think I kind of I, I kind of disagree. I think they're they look good. They could have won two or three nil. Um, there's room yeah, for that's, improvement. That doesn't mean they underachieved if they could have won two or three nil and they won one nil. <laughs> oh, that, I guess that just means they did. Yeah, so they are underachievers. They underachieved again. Mexico, I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> but I think it, it's, it says more about Germany than it does Mexico. Um, they looked kind of out of sorts. And other chances were clear cut. And it looks like they really miss Bastian Schweinsteiger and Philipp Lahm, um, kind of their old guard. Uh, so... It's still early. It's probably a good thing for the tournament on a whole for the teams like Germany and Argentina not to get results early on because it means they'll actually have something to play for come the third game of the group tournament, of the group stages. So uh, it'll be very interesting to see how they respond. But good for Mexico. Well, good for Mexico. Germany is in full meltdown already. The Guardian's headline uh, this morning is media commentators draw parallels with Angela Merkel's struggle to keep the coalition government together, which I think is That's a the first thing I thought analysis. That's exactly it. what I thought. And Germany, and this is an ESPN headline, Germany cancel World Cup media activity after Mexico loss as paper slams wimps. I'm making air quotes around wimps. They called off all media activities on Monday. Philip Lahm was supposed to give a news conference uh, for Germany's bid for the 2024 Euros. That was called off. Um, Love a good meltdown. The national, national Mineshaft. They're going to train behind closed doors on Monday. I think Schweinsteiger not being there is my biggest disappointment because I love screaming Schweinsteiger at the screen when he comes on. Who's saying you can't do that? I did it anyway during the Mexico game because I realized that he, you know, I knew he wasn't playing. This, this makes me hope that Germany loses every game. It's so funny. <laughs> well, Spain lost its first game in, in 2010 and won the World Cup. It's good to have a little uh, overreaction here. I think Germany will probably be okay. That's my prediction. That's my prediction. Philip Lom, to be fair, the ESPN story notes that he did speak later on Monday. We were all wondering. During a visit to a German school, he took questions (laughs) only from school children, not from journalists. The school children are all like, what the fuck is wrong with the Mannschaft, (laughs) Philip? I would love like a newspaper to have their youngest looking reporter go (laughs) undercover as a school child to ask him about the 2024 bid for the Euros. Um, Landon Donovan has come out uh, and said that Americans should support Mexico in the tournament. USA fans, our team may not be in Russia, but our neighbors to the south are. So join me and their proud hashtag sponsor, Wells, Wells Fargo, to cheer on our other team, Mexico. Vamos, Mexico. Um, Landon Donovan, Mexican uh, shill for pay. Um, and then things got a little bit off the rails, like his former national team uh, teammates, including Carlos Bocanegra, responded, Really? 
And then Donovan uh, wrote back to Bocanegra, you grew up in SoCal and owe much of your soccer skill to playing with Mexicans. Your father is of Mexican descent. Look around our country. Are you happy with how we are treating Mexicans? Open your mind, stand for something, and remember where you came from. Uh, I I just want to add that after your father is of Mexican descent, he does parentheses uh, face palm emoji. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a good emoji on multiple levels. Listeners know that I've been in the bag for Donovan for many years, but Landon, man, this was not a good take. I don't know what Wells Fargo was paying him. And look, Landon played this spring in Mexico, came out of retirement. He has always made it clear that he supports Mexican culture and Mexican football. But on the other hand, you know, Mexican fans throw like urine on American players or used to, maybe not anymore. And this is our biggest rival. This is a huge rivalry. And I understand the sentiment. I mean, look, more, more soccer fans go to watch the Mexican national team play in the United States than than watch the U.S. national team play in the United States very often. I mean, there's a reason that, that uh, for a lot of money, Mexican national team games, friendlies, are played here. Because there's a huge audience. I mean, that doesn't mean that everyone in the United States needs to support Mexico. Well, this is just a weird situation because I am also extremely sympathetic to Landon Donovan. He seems like a good dude and generally uh, is totally. pushing you know, everything in, in the right direction as far as his sport goes, but it's just weird that he's like getting all self-righteous about this and telling Carlos Bocanegra how he should feel while he's like being paid by Wells Fargo to endorse Mexico. It's it's like if, if you're like a paid endorser and then like attacking someone else for their sincerity and saying that they should feel a certain way because of like their heritage, it's really weird. But Nick, let's like separate, separate that out. And just what is your feeling on whether Americans should root for Mexico, irrespective of whether Landon Donovan tells us to or not. Well, as VP of Consumer Outreach for Wells Fargo, <laughs> I also uh, support Landon Donovan in this. No, I think it's got, it's very college football, isn't it? Um, you know, if a, a LSU fan will support um, a SEC team in a bowl game, because it kind of makes their conference appear stronger or makes their own victories seem better. So I have no problem with someone's American supporting Mexico. I I personally am rooting for them in this tournament because I think they're they're fun to watch. And if the United States aren't in it, what's the harm in that? Um, I'm also not. The harm is emboldening them, strengthening (laughs) them for our future Concacaf clashes. Stefan, I thought the the part about fans throwing urine was kind of like a cheap shot, but just because. Mm Even if even if that is true, which I'm not sure that it is true, it is true. It happened in the at least in the 90s. Um, Didn't Landon pee in the center of the Azteca? Is that a big scandal? Yeah, that was a scandal too. No, the pee goes. It wasn't like in the center of the field, like a Terrell Owens thing. It was (laughs) Terrell Owens didn't pee; he just stood there. I know it's but the parallel. Um, Anyway, it's not fair to count fans' behavior against the Mexican national team. It's like back to LSU again. It's not like um, uh, I maybe I should, but it's like. LSU has like a ton of like horrible fans who say and do horrible things. But like I don't necessarily count that in my calculus about whether I'm going to root for the team or not. I think I was probably most cringy about Donovan bringing in the current political relations between the United States and Mexico into this rivalry. Um, that just makes me a little uncomfortable. I mean, I – But why? I, like that, that seems relevant. You think that seems relevant? I mean, it's still you like ar- if I can isolate just the pure soccer rivalry, particularly over the last 20 years, 
I can't find reason to root for Mexico. I like watching them play, and I think they played a great game against Germany. And in some ways, it's it's there's You've some schadenfreude in watching Germany fail. <laughs> and there's a little part of me that says, yeah, that was kind of cool that Mexico did well. Yeah, let them get out of the group and lose in the round of 16 again. That would be okay with me. All right. I like how Don- Donovan's extended kind of um, – Righteous response to Carlos Bocanegra was just the text or the tweet, really, question mark. It was (laughs) – he uncorked a lot just based on the responding to, really. (laughs) That set the man off. All right. Messi missed a penalty. Ronaldo scored three goals. I'm sure we'll get to them uh, on future episodes of this podcast. But we'll we'll leave that as a uh, uh, homework assignment for the listeners. Compare uh, Lionel Messi to Cristiano Ronaldo because that's not at all a hacky thing to do. Um, but Nick, the new, um, thing in this tournament, the thing that's already affected the outcome of multiple games is a VAR video assistant review, which is the instant replay system in soccer. You've assessed it. You've written about it. How do you feel like the rollout has gone so far? So far, so good. Um, the only problem is I don't know whether they call it VAR or VAR. Um, but I guess that's a, a matter that we can kind of pick apart as the tournament goes on. But for a system that has had you know not much there's not much experience with it it's very new it has effectively gotten every single call it's been involved in correct um sure there have been times where the referees have ignored var or the var ref has uh not exactly chimed in to alert the referee of a foul or indiscretion but all the actual reviews have been called correctly which is an amazing kind of uh early achievement for it i'm sure it's going to mess up you know, in a very uh, spectacular way, some point in the tournament, but so far so good. France and Australia was an example where um, France won two to one with, uh, they were awarded a, a penalty by VAR. That was the decisive uh, goal in the game, Stefan. My favorite part of VAR is when the referee makes the little TV symbol with his fingers. I think that's a great skill for the referee to have. A um, little timing nice. there. Yeah, if like a big gust, he pretended a big gust of wind came and he was kind of fighting against that, or he was pulling himself back onto the pitch with an imaginary rope. Maybe yes. you can add that. I mean, I think it also opens the door in future tournaments for referees being trained to make all calls in sort of mime, like reenacting what the call is for offside or for a foul, red card. Very avant garde, very Parisian. Yes, it would be. Um, as for VAR itself, I'm not a huge fan. I find that part of the game should be, you know, particularly when we're talking about it, it reminds me of the sort of, of when, when a guy slides into second base and his foot comes a micrometer off of the base, and we call that now. Um, when there is a tiny touch in the box that that is a, a discretionary observable offense, I find it hard to be sympathetic to to the the missed call. I think that that there should be some room for referee error in, in, in split-second actions. And look, soccer is hard. There's only one ref on the field making calls from a, a greater distance than in other sports very often. Um, the sideline refs are way far away, and it's difficult for them to adjudicate even the stuff that they're able to adjudicate. I don't have a problem with VAR for ball over the goal line, even for offside, um, which is – you know, again, a, a really hard, but usually non-contact. But for the contact fouls, I find it like it does slow the game down and it does take some emotional impact out of 
out of uh, of the run of play. Yeah, I agree. I think it seems like the system should stop, but the system never stops. There's a there's always replay creep. Should stop with ball over the goal line, offside, and I guess maybe out of bounds. Although out of yeah, bounds isn't like a gets. huge no. deal in in soccer, but um. The, the judgment calls, um, the subjective calls, I think the, the only other alternative here, given that we live in an age when apparently this needs to exist in every sport, is to put more referees on the field, which to me seems like it would be um, better. Uh, I Oh, no, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, here, if referees arguing with each other, getting in the way, they already get in the way enough as it is. Just the balls, they would be peppered with balls everywhere. Exactly. Well, well here's the problem. The reason that this um, exists now, I think, and the reason that um, people feel like there's a need to review these like calls to see if you know players are like simulating or whether they really got hit, is that there's an enormous incentive in soccer just because goals are so valuable to, you know, play up contact or pretend contact exists when it doesn't exist at all. And the fact that there's only referee creates conditions where that's extremely likely to succeed. And so soccer has basically done this to itself. And the only way to fix it, as I said, I think is to add more referees, because if you don't have a replay system and you have a sport where individual goals are so valuable, and you only have one referee, like what's the this is what's going to well, happen. The other, the other way would be to 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 penalize simulation more aggressively than referees to currently do. Like after the game is over. But I believe they can do that with video assist if they go back and see that it was a dive. I'm oh, not exactly video sure. assist just fix ev- fixes yeah. everything. In I world. love it. I think, and if any sport can, you know, stand to have a few breaks here and there for video review, it's soccer because it's so free flowing and it kind of the, the drama built. It's so free flowing. Why don't we just stop it for a while? I'm it's the only reason I'm watching the World Cup from here on out. It's VAR. I have a VAR jersey on. I got my little <laughs> VAR pennant and scarf. Well, we also just haven't quite figured out, I think, as fans, like maybe people who are like way more um, up to date and into soccer than I am, maybe know. Like, but as, as I'm watching the game now, I don't understand. Like, can you stop the game for this? How long are they going to stop the game? Is this a thing where they're going to whistle it in from the sideline and they'll just tell the ref in the earpiece, or is the ref going to actually have to like go off the field? I still haven't like quite figured it out. So you're always just kind of like, does this really count? Are we going to stop now? It's just kind of confusing at this stage. And there's no after- and there's no hood on the field for the referees to look under, so it's very confusing for Americans. I fans. like it. As I wrote, it looks like a kind of a airport ticketing kiosk, so I can relate to it. <laughs> it feels like going to O'Hare and checking in. But I think after um, a single uh, stoppage of play, if VAR is not consulted, then it's over and you can't go back. Okay. So there's no – you know, 15 minutes later, they can't do a VAR. Um, let's end this with a quick um, thoughts on Fox Sports. Nick, how do you think they're doing so far? I think they've benefited from low expectations. Uh it's not great. It's not terrible. Um, you can't exactly tell that most of the crews aren't in Russia live commentating. Um, however, uh, the the ones who are there, you don't really get any benefit from their uh, them being in the stadium. There's no real up close insight. Tony Miola is not wowing me with his his knowledge and his keen eye yet. But other than that, it's it's better than it should be, but not as good as it could be. 
So it's better than nothing is what you're saying. <laughs> the <laughs> games are on TV. The games yes. are on television. You can How watch can them. Play? And there are people speaking English with American <laughs> accents. I wake up and soccer's on my television. I'm not going to complain. I think Tony Miola's awful. Um, you know, his insights are, are pretty unimpressive. And his voice is just incredible. Former American goalkeeper. Former American goalkeeper who tried out for the New York Jets. Um, and his voice is really monotonous and bland. And that is not a good quality to have. I think John Strong and Stuart Holden, the who I think are the A team, are the the better of of all of them. I don't know. Are John and Stuart? Are they in? Are I think they they're in the A team. They, no, they they're in, they're in Russia. Russia. They're in yeah. Russia. Um, Ali Wagner, first woman to call a, a men's World Cup game in the U.S. She's, She's been bad. good. She's been Derek fine. Ray, yep. Yeah. 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 Um, and this is all, of course, because the U.S. Part of this is because the U.S. didn't qualify. Fox decided to hold back sending a larger contingent of announcers to Russia because they wouldn't need. So this is all Bruce Arena's fault. Too. This is also all Bruce <laughs> Arena's fault. Yes. Um, I don't, back. I don't think it's that bad. I think it's hard to evaluate because there's an opportunity cost here. Like you don't know. It, it's just hard as you're watching a game to like know how much better it could be if there were better production values if they were at the stadium and not in a studio. You you disagree? Uh, and I don't even think that's necessarily the issue. I think that the studio crew has been pretty lame in Russia uh, with Lawless and three others uh, rotating. I, I found ESPN's coverage to be a lot better in previous World Cups, and I think NBC's coverage week to week with the Premiership and, and other games has been far superior. Yeah, we're, we're really spoiled because ESPN's uh, in Brazil, their coverage was just fantastic. And as you said, NBC's ongoing Premier League um, coverage is great. So as soccer fans in America, we're just simply spoiled. And maybe we deserve uh, a kind of clunker of a Fox World Cup here and there. All right. Uh, Nick Green, uh, get back to your TV. Uh, Sweden beat uh, South Korea while we were recording. One to Go nothing. VAR. All right. VAR did it. <laughs> There was another, was a VAR, VAR action there? Oh, yeah. Nick uh, Green writes about VAR and other World Cup things for Slate. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to chatting about golfers who whine about how golf is too hard, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Nick Green will be back to talk about rumors that Kawhi Leonard wants to leave San Antonio for the Lakers and whether a LeBron-Kawhi super team in L.A. would be fun and good for America. If you want to hear that conversation, you should join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. Joining us for our next segment is Slate's golf correspondent, Jim Newell, who was watching golf this weekend when he was allegedly at a wedding. What is that's that about? False. What's that's that about, a, Jim? That's false. More lies from Josh. Uh, on Sunday at Shinnecock Hills, which Jim was watching when he probably should have been at a brunch of some kind. Maybe. That is maybe. <laughs> Brooks Kepka won his second straight U.S. Open, shooting a final round 68 to finish the tournament at one over par, one shot ahead 
of England's Tommy Fleetwood. Let's listen to a snippet of Kepka's post-tournament press conference. Uh, it's incredible. Uh, I looked at all these names a million times, it felt like, last year. Uh, just looking at everybody and, you know, to have my name on there twice is pretty incredible. And to go back to back is even more extraordinary. Man, is that guy boring. I mean, th- I mean you, you might have thought wrong, I- though. It is indeed uh, extraordinary and, and super cool. Um, you might have thought that I put that clip in just for the news value, but the reason that I put the clip in is because, A, I want to say you got to come harder than that two-time U.S. Open champion Brooks Kepka. but it also leads into my question about Brooks Kepka Jim, is, which is, as a generalist sports fan who follows golf around the majors and also just enjoys watching a little Tiger Woods now and again, um, I want to be well-informed about the game, but do I really need to now, like, know stuff about Brooks Kepka. I do not want to know about Brooks Kepka. He seems boring. Is he going to be like such a great, amazing stalwart of the game that I'll be forced to now learn facts about Brooks Kepka? Well, I mean, that's the you sort of hit it there when I mean you said he's boring. You don't actually have to learn a whole lot about him because there isn't that much about I n- him. I now know everything. You I think you know everything. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I mean well, did you watch any of it last year? If you, because if you watch any of the U.S. Open last year, you've watched. Then, I think I was out of town or something. Well, then you I think I was at a wedding. You know, because this is only his third PGA Tour win, but two of them have been U.S. Opens, which is pretty incredible. I'm surprised that he hasn't won more regular tour events. Um, well, if you knew a little bit more about him, Jim, you'd know that he's had a wrist injury. Well, no, at the beginning he had four, yeah four months off at the beginning of this year, but he's been on tour. So he actually took an interesting path to the PGA Tour. He played in Europe for a while and got his PGA Tour card that way. Brooks is American. Yes, he's American. He uh, so went he to Florida State. So he his way into getting a PGA Tour card. Yeah, and there are like a few who have done that. There's another uh, good young player who's doing that right now. Um, is that considered cheating on par with like putting a moving ball? Uh, I Which, don't think it's on cheating. I don't think it's quite that level of cheating. <laughs> putting Where a moving ball. Where would you ball. rather play? Like have a play in a tournament in Berlin or in like Chattanooga? Yeah. Good move. Chattanooga wow. has really you fast. You have to apologize to Chattanooga. Chattanooga Sorry, has really Chattanooga. fast municipal internet. So I think maybe Chattanooga is, is an up and comer. <laughs> um, but back to Brooks, like the most interesting thing that I've uh, read about him in the last couple of days was that he's like a dude who played a lot of sports growing up. He, um, the ESPN piece um, that I read, his swing coach, Claude Harmon III, apparently all swing coaches are, are Har- in the Harmon family. Harmons have been swing coaches for a million years, yeah. Um, he says Brooks has never been a golf nerd. He's just this like jock. And I was wondering how you felt about that, Jim, as a, as a nerd, yeah. as a golf nerd. A golf nerd specifically, yeah. Yeah. Does it feel like... Brooks Kepka and his like muscle bound like pals like Dustin Johnson. Good looking are they, guy. Are they? Are they yeah. taking? Let's cut to the chase here. <laughs> are they taking the game away from the like more nerdy dweeby types? Uh, Is this bad for Jim? You're Newell? Tommy Fleetwood, uh, for instance. I, I think it's bad for me because it really hampers my ability to get on the PGA Tour eventually. If actual good athletes, you know, <laughs> are playing, but I think that was a long shot anyway. But you see that. I mean, there have been. You know, in the last 10 years, a lot of big, strong players who could do a lot of different sports. Like Gary Woodland is a tour player. He played college basketball. Um, but, I mean, it's still— even Jason if, Day, strapping dude. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can have a lot of guys who can just hit it 350, but, I mean, you still have to have a lot of touch to get around. And, I mean, that's where a lot of them can't put it all together. And it looks like Brooks, ha- you know, 
has the whole thing put together right now. But there are definitely better athletes coming in. But isn't in. this – this is the Tiger influence, right? Like it's okay to go to the gym and it's okay yeah. to be buff and it's okay to be strong. Yeah, I think you're drawing better athletes into it because it's not, you know – quite as lame a sport I mean, as the, it was the, the for parallel, its first 400 right. years. And the parallel was, like, you know, baseball in the 90s that people realized not only could you lift weights and still not have your swing be hampered. Wait, what are you suggesting about Brooks Kepka Stefan? No, no, no. I didn't mean <laughs> to go there. But there was a, you know, there was a trend of, you know, you, in baseball, it was believed that you shouldn't lift weights because it'll restrict your swing and it'll restrict your arm motion. And in golf, I think it was a similar thought. And, and you actually, Tigers disproved that. Well, and you actually hear that a lot still from old timers. I mean, by old timers, I mean people who played in the 80s and 90s, that these guys who are trying to get really jacked are just ruining their their swing because they don't have as much flexibility with it. But I... That's exactly what they said in baseball. Yeah. I mean, hasn't Tiger, didn't Tiger kind of disprove that toward the, you know, the end of his ma- his major runs when he was buff? I mean, he obviously wasn't huge when he, at the beginning. Right. Yeah. I mean, there were some people who said that Tiger was putting, I don't know, the, I think where Tiger was a little different that he was putting so much time in the room that he was maybe hurting his body a little bit. Um, Without all that Navy SEAL shit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, We've gone way too long talking about Brooks Koepka. Wait, his girlfriend started an attack of the 50-foot cheerleader. All right, that was— going to be in Sharknado 5, which is due out in August. One of the top five Sharknados. Um, Let's talk about the players whining about how Shinnecock Kills was too hard. You love when that happens, I love it when this happens. Oh, this is my favorite thing in sports. And it might have been too hard. So let's look at it first rationally, Jim. Those pin placements on Saturday were unfair on two holes from what I read and what players were saying. In my opinion, on four holes, but yes. Four holes, two holes, four holes, whatever. (laughs) We can quibble, Jim. We'll do that (laughs) off mic. Um, so meaning they were too close to the edge of the green or yeah, they on this were show, too you just close. affirm, you affirm what Stefan said. You don't say four, you say two. There was two holes. <laughs> too close to the edge of the green and too close to a slope or basically on a slope, right. right? And then they didn't water the greens and the sun came out and they got really, really fast and it was impossible to keep the ball on the green. But that's kind of cool, right? I mean, it's fun to see great athletes being presented with conditions. It's not every sport where you can you can vary the conditions to make the challenge more difficult. Right. I I mean, I loved it. I love the suffering. I love the carnage. I was I was fine with the unfair pin locate, you know, quote unquote unfair pin locations. I guess what was annoying to me a little bit was that the golf course on Saturday played completely different between uh, Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon. So if it's going to be, you know, completely unfair, that's fine with me. I just wish it was consistent throughout that all the day. Because well, what do you do? Play in a dome? I mean, the <laughs> no, I mean, there's like, not much you can do. It. I mean, I think you, you I, water the greens, right? Yeah, or you just move the pin like you know a yard closer to the middle, so that if the wind kicks up and you're downwind and it's hot and baked out, that you you know can actually hold the green a little bit. Is that okay to do? I mean, in the rules, can you? Shift the pin placements during the no, round. No, right. No. So, that's so what I you mean, were it's implying. just something so that they. Like it, no, no, it's something that they need to figure up. out ahead of the day because it's something where I mean they were pushing it so much to the edge that you know the wind picks up five or ten miles more than they were predicting. Then you have a few holes that you know you can't actually hold the green on them. So I mean, I thought it was just a little silly that like on Saturday, um, Finau and Berger, who you know shot really good rounds, but they shot them in the morning round. You know, they were able to get from 45th place to first place because they were playing completely different course from the guys in the afternoon. So I'm a little bit relieved that one of the guys who was playing in the afternoon, who was in good position on Saturday to begin with, Brooks Kepka, actually ended up winning. 
this happens in the British Open all the time, right? Where the Wendell just Yeah, I mean, it's and, life. This isn't the first time it's ever happened. Sure. And it happens in downhill skiing. I mean, this is a thing that happens when you play sports outdoors in which the conditions are Well, you really sound important. like the USGA now. They were saying, this is an outdoor game, okay? <laughs> well, all right, let's evaluate. <laughs> you sound like the man. <laughs> That's uh, what I, who I aspire to be. Um, let's kind of categorize or taxonomize the different kinds of whining and which are which are our favorite there's ian poulter thanks guys did bozo set the course up or are the usga going to accept responsibility or just say if we had a mulligan i would have liked about six mulligans today but they're not allowed at this level quote apparently that my favorite thing about that is that it just like doesn't make any sense syntactically apparently as i just looked in the rules books and found out um rafa cabrera bello said it was not a fair test of golf Greens run playable with unnecessary pin positions. USGA found a way to make us look like fools on the course. <gasps> no. A pity they managed to destroy a beautiful golf course. That was like a kind of consistent yeah. thread where it was like, <laughs> it's a shame what they've done to Shinnecock. Beautiful, beautiful Shinnecock. I know. They they burned it to the ground, Shinnecock. And then, I, you know, then the they just put some water on it that night them. and it was fine. It played really right. well yesterday. So, yeah. Yeah, they just don't. Dude you know, shot a 63 yesterday. It's it's like the one tournament a year or, you know, sometimes the British Open can actually be worse. But it's the one time a year where they look like fools and they can't handle it. I don't know. They're very, they're very pampered athletes. So, Stefan, you wanted to talk about Tommy Fleetwood, who shot uh, 63 on Sunday, had an eight-foot putt for... 62 that uh, would have gotten him to one over, which is where Brooks kept ended. Guy has long hair. He didn't used to have long hair, so I'm interested in the transition of Tommy Fleetwood. He's gone total rocker. I think Steve Buscemi would play him in uh, in, in the Tommy Fleetwood story. Yeah, I've only I've only known him with long hair. I, I looked. Know, I saw a picture of him out. earlier from five or six years ago. Oh, okay, very clean cut. It looked like to me, unless I was looking at an yeah. imposter. Well, now he has a distinct look, which you know is good. So not everyone's just a Brook. Brooks kept a right, machine he doesn't, out there, And he's you know? not like a stud, Tommy. He's a little guy. He's a little <laughs> he's a, he's a thin he's a thin dude. Yeah. He's a reedy a reedy Brit. He's a reedy Brit. He's got four wins on the European tour. I don't know if I'd ever heard of him before. He's not he finished fourth in the US Open though, right? Previously. Yeah, he was fourth last year. Yeah. His other his other wins have been in Abu Dhabi, France, and Scotland. And he also won the Kazakhstan Open in two thousand eleven. Yeah, that's a biggie. Fifth Good. major. <laughs> Good for that guy. Well, it's the second tournament in a row where the dude who made the big charge on Sunday doesn't end up winning, which is sad. That's like, another one of my favorite golf things is when the dude makes the big charge and his name is up there and the cameras keep trying to find him to see what he's doing while everyone else is right. trying I mean, there, not to blow it. Well, Patrick Reed, we should also briefly talk about. He made a big charge in the beginning there, too. And I think everyone who was watching the U.S. Open on television, was rooting for him to start hitting it in the rough, and he did. So I think everyone <laughs> willed him into losing. Congratulations, fans. All right, let's get to Phil Mickelson on Saturday during that round that was so unfair that was designed by Bozo. Um, he was 10 over par, and on the 13th hole, was that one of the ones that was unfair? Yes. The 13th? Um, he uh, hit a putt. It went past the hole. And wait, uh, let, we've got a clip of this. Let's let's listen. This for bogey a moment ago at 13. Well, his speed has been terrible. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. Wow. I, I that that's stunning. I love that uh, 
you have no idea what's going on just listening to the clip, but they they seem really appalled. Joe Buck does play-by-play, right? He does. So what happened was he putted the, the ball past the hole, and then he hit it again back towards the While hole, the ball was, still, the ball was still moving. He ran putt, after it. Putt-putt style? Yeah. Yeah, like a four-year-old playing putt-putt. Um, he claimed afterwards that he did this intentionally, that he, he <laughs> it was like a strategic maneuver, and that he was going to take the two-shot penalty because um, if he had actually had to play the ball when it stopped, he would have shot a higher score. He's very, uh, very smart guy, this Phil Mickelson. Yeah. Um, what do you think of what he said and what the reaction was? Uh, I... <laughs> What he said was, I think, a little bogus. He, it made it sound like he was, you know, thinking completely rationally when he did it. And it was just, oh, I want to do this little experiment, you know. Uh, I think he was probably very mad. Um, and that was probably a bigger part of it. it. I mean, I do believe that he's thought about doing this before. But, it, I mean, the math didn't really add up to me that he was somehow yeah. going to, you know, Saves, you know, he could save stroke somehow this way because it was, you know, two stroke penalty. And then when he whacked it back towards the hole, that was another shot and they took two more putts. So <laughs> I think he was just a little more, uh, a little more head up than he, um, than he, he led on to. Yeah. It was weird because like everybody else was like really willing to talk about how they were so mad. Yeah. And then Phil, who was clearly the maddest of anyone, was like, no, I wasn't that mad. It was fine. Yeah, but that was like two hours later when he had a chance to go yeah. into the cabin or whatever they call it. I think he assembled his team, his got crisis his team, team together yeah. and figured out what he should say to the Fox cameras when he emerged from the clubhouse. I think Phil was full of shit. And I think that hot take, he should have been disqualified. I mean, look at the rules. I read the rules. I read all the stories about this. The rule isn't intended to help a golfer mitigate a bad shot. That's not the point of this rule, the two-stroke penalty for hitting a moving ball. It is intended to punish a player who hits a ball unthinkingly or in anger, he, who hits a ball not in the spirit of the game, right? And the spirit of the game is like rule one literally in the golf rule book. Um, Phil was exploiting Mr. the golf letter rules of over here. the rule. Phil was exploiting the letter of the rule to gain a possible advantage to compensate for a shitty shot. Yeah, I mean, uh, we both enjoyed that. Like Fox just brought on some like random British guy. Yeah. Uh, the on Sunday morning to say, I think he's a chump. I think he made a complete mistake. In Britain, we would call him an an ass, a silly ass. And then I, love like, I love how you just like bring out bring out a British guy to say that in Britain we would have ca- we call it an ass. That's good television production. We don't right have there. that word in America, no. so it was nice for him to tell us. Sorry, I pronounced it wrong. We call him an ass, um, a silly ass. But this was an example of um, on Twitter or elsewhere on the internet. You can basically find every iteration of every opinion, and there are certainly enough people out there saying Phil was horrible and had disgraced the game that like the backlash could to the backlash could then come in where people were like, Oh, like people are taking this way too seriously. All of you like golf people with your rules of the game. Um, If you wanted to be like outraged about Phil or outraged about the outrage about Phil, there was certainly more than enough fodder there for your uh, pleasure this weekend. Yeah, I think that uh, one thing that was annoying about it, and it, I, I think this is something that annoyed the other players too, was that Phil finds a way to do sort of goofy things that draw all the attention to him. 
and then sort of distracts from the rest of the tournament. And especially, you when know, people should have been focusing on how horrible the course was. Exactly. <laughs> well, people should have been focused on the leaders. But, uh, I, you know, it, Fox, which I thought I think does generally a pretty good job. I mean, it was just I would say the majority of time was spent talking about Phil and like Curtis Strange taking, you know, chasing Phil around. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think a lot of people just, you know, it, it Phil finds a way to bring all the attention to him, which rubs pe- some people the wrong way. When Tiger's not around for the weekend, you got to fill the airtime with something rather than just showing golf. Yeah, there you go. Jim Newell watches golf on the weekends. He also works for Slate. He writes about Congress and sometimes golf. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Sure, the World Cup is the most entertaining sports spectacle on the planet, but as we enjoy the goals and the thunderclaps, we should also think about the venality that underlines the entire proposition. That is the subject of a new book, Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal, which the New York Times calls an engrossing and jaw-dropping tale of international intrigue. It's written by Ken Bensinger. He is an investigative reporter for BuzzFeed and a former fresh-from-college colleague of mine at the Wall Street Journal, where in 1998... He profiled Boomer Esiason's seven-bedroom, six-and-a-half-bath, for-sale suburban Cincinnati home. Ken, congratulations on the book. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. I cannot believe you found that Boomer Esiason article. Wow. (laughs) Why are you not congratulating Boomer Esiason on his big house? We don't know that it's sold. There was so much. There was such a fun article to write. The, among the highlights were the fact that he had trouble selling a house with a um, a sports court that was painted with a Jets logo. (laughs) no one wanted that. Um, he Go also figure. called me up and tried to, to strong arm me by impressing me that Boomer Esiason was calling me directly and wanted, wanted me to know that I needed to write a positive article about his house. <laughs> well, it was either that article, Ken, or Toys for Real Men, Weekend Woodworkers Turn to High-End Power Tools. <laughs> I had trouble <laughs> deciding. Let's get to the book, <laughs> Stefan. Let's get to the book. Ken, the book is a narrative about the meticulous case that was built by U.S. tax agents and prosecutors that resulted in guilty pleas or convictions of more than a dozen international soccer executives from the Western Hemisphere. Of course, corruption in soccer goes back decades to the 1970s, but I want to start with the bidding for the current World Cup in Russia that we are watching now. How does that connect to the U.S. case? It apparently connects to everything. The uh, history is that in 2010, there was a vote to determine where this current World Cup would be held. And it was there was six different countries um, uh, competing for it. Uh, two of the bids were combined bids, Spain and Portugal, Belgium and Netherlands were competing against England and, and Mother Russia. And England was, by everyone's account, the clear favorite to win it. Um, but it turns out Russia had other ideas in mind. And um, it developed that uh, Russia was going to do anything it could to to win the, win the bid, which they ultimately did. 
in England, um, which was spending quite a bit of money to win the bid and was putting uh, forward their what they called their three lions, Prince William, David Cameron, Cameron and David Beckham, to promote their bid, um, hired a bunch of intelligence types to to look into the other competing bids. And one of the people they hired was a, uh, a man who was not famous at the time, who has become quite famous now by the name of Christopher Steele. And this was among Christopher Steele's first ever commissions as a independent non-spy uh, in, the, in the world of private corporate intelligence. And he starts digging around in this and starts discovering that Russia seems to be doing a number of underhanded things to get the bid, such as giving FIFA voters paintings potentially looted from the Hermitage, um, making secret gas deals with Qatar. Um, and um, involving Roman Abramovich, who's the owner of Chelsea and a close bosom buddy of Vladimir Putin's, to go out there and do the dirty work. So we all know about Sepp Blatter. Um, you got started writing about this stuff, writing about the kind of amazingly corrupt and uh, rich character of uh, Chuck Blazer, the American soccer official. Um, just tell folks who aren't familiar with Chuck Blazer, just give a little bit of a sketch of this dude. If you can sort of imagine the, um, the father on the side of your AYSO game who um, says things like, if I ran soccer, here's the rules I would put into the game. Um, that's Chuck Blazer gone good. He, he was the father on the side of um, Ruth Soccer Games in the 1970s in Westchester County who claimed he would someday take over soccer, and he did. Um, he eventually became one of the 24 most powerful people in all of soccer, a member of the FIFA executive committee, um, the number two in the um, CONCACAF, which, as you all know, is the beautifully named uh, regional confederation overseeing North, Central America and Caribbean soccer, um, and just generally an incredibly powerful soccer voice, a guy who um, probably had a big role in creation of the women's U.S. national team and the Women's World Cup and also getting Major League Soccer its first TV contract. So that's that's one side of it. And the other side is that he was skimming money from the sport constantly, um, taking commissions <laughs> on everything he did, um, pocketing it, um, taking bribes, and generally enriching himself while putting every single expense in his life on soccer's credit card. Um, and um, all of this was being done while he refused to pay taxes. So he didn't file income tax for decades. And in the end, that uh, became a critical a lever for the IRS to hook him and make him a cooperator in the investigation. And that's one of the interesting things in this story, right? This starts as a as, as basically a, a tax case, um, or at least it's the cudgel that the IRS can use to get Blazer to flip. And when they do, and Blazer turns out, I mean, you didn't mention the fact that he's also this 400-pound guy riding around on a, on a motorized scooter because his health is so impaired. And he's got this giant gray beard and this bizarro website where he would post photos of himself with dignitaries and celebrities from around the world. Um, but they get Blazer to flip, and Blazer turns out to be one of the great cooperating witnesses of all time. Um, he, he, he's in the Cooperating Witness Hall of Fame. He, first he ballot. Uh, he's a first ballot candidate for sure. Um, I mean, he basically reveals what he has been doing for 20 plus years, which begins with this crazy contract that he wrote for himself in CONCACAF that gave him the rights to 10% of like everything. 
revenue from television contracts, marketing deals, you name it, tickets, food, whatever, that nobody knew about. And what strikes me, Ken, is just how unsophisticated and how just rotten to the core soccer organizations have been. And yeah, CONCACAF is this small region within this global entity, but by the same token, it's throwing off hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue through big tournaments and other events. Yeah, that's right. And I think he, one of uh, Chuck Blazer's geniuses, and you're right, he was rather colorful. Anyone who takes a moment to Google him will discover um, his affection for Halloween costumes, including pirates with real uh, paras on his shoulder and um, Star Wars characters and the like, and it's quite entertaining. Um, but he had a real gift for understanding marketing and seeing opportunity. And he saw that even though the revenue of this thing was nothing when he took over, it could be huge. And, and he wrote himself this secret contract and had a huge incentive that's to grow the sport. And he did. His defenders will sometimes even say, well, yeah, it's true. He, he stole a lot of money, but, you know, the sport's a lot bigger because of him. It's sort of a it's that's the kind of justification you hear. Um, but it's, you know, it's also a testament to sort of how um the impunity you see in soccer, or you've, we've seen in soccer, because the truth is, as I mentioned earlier, if it started as a Russia investigation, well, turns out Russians cover their tracks pretty well. Um, and I think the prosecutors in this case discovered quickly that it was hard to make a case against the Russians. Yeah, covered but their tracks seemed- by, like, destroying the computers and the servers that, <laughs> right. that leave- <laughs> all of the bid materials were on, right? That's right. They leave no paper trail. But all the, all the soccer officials believe that they are above all oversight. And so they didn't even bother really being careful at some point. And it was exceedingly easy. I mean, they were sending wire transfers through the U.S. So that's how the case gets made, right? That's what Blazer explains to them how the bribes work. And and then it's relatively easy once they understand the concept to just find wire transfer after wire transfer going through American banks, something that I think a Russian spy would never do or a Russian Kremlin operative. And so suddenly all of the Americas just collapses because they've all been bribing each other like crazy. And all it took was a blazer to explain how it worked and one or two other cooperators. And it was off to the uh, off to the jury box. As just a feat of reporting, um, this is a, incredible. And I'm just wondering, um, journalistically, was the challenge here getting people to talk to you? Or was it that you just had so much information. Um, there are obviously like a huge number of ways into this story, different agencies that were investigating, like people in different, like basically every country in the entire world could be a source here just because of all the, you know, FIFA member um, uh, organizations. So I'm just wondering, like, as a reporter, was it more challenging to get information or to sift all the ample information that was out there? I, I, it's hard to pick uh, because they're both true, right? I, it was very difficult to get inform, uh, all the information I wanted, but at the same time, by the time I was ready to write, it was a massive plethora, the too much plethora, plethora of information to to work with. Um, and um, so the testament to that is that my first draft was about twice as long as the book ended up being, um, and great great huge sections of soccer history had to go by the wayside but if you ever privately over a malted beverage of your choice would like to talk about the (laughs) 1994 world cup and the intrigue involving that or even better how the u.s bid for and lost the 1986 world cup we can we can talk about that at length um who was your favorite on the record source or just kind of character who if you read the book you might not 
get a sense that like so much of the material that you got was from this individual? Well, my, my favorite uh, on the record source was definitely Seth Blatter. Um, and and it, the, the, my, one of my two interviews with him, I think, is illustrative of the problems. I went to Zurich in February 2016 to watch the election of a new president. And Blatter at that point had resigned and then um, been banned from FIFA. His initial ban for ethics violations had been eight years. It was reduced to six years. This was a man who was now disgraced. Um, I was in Zurich to see this election of his successor, and FIFA did not like the fact that I was going to write a book. They were unhappy with it. They were not being helpful. In fact, they were really getting in my way, and they refused to accredit me for the um, election. There was 900 accredited journalists at this. I mean, anyone with a pulse was getting into this. It was in a giant hockey arena where anyone could fit in. They refused to give it to me, and I was despondent because I'd had months of people refusing to talk to me. And then my phone rang, and it was Sepp Blatter. And he said, why don't you come over to my house and we'll watch the vote on my iPad together. <laughs> I took a, uh, a taxi over there and it turns out to be this immaculately, incredibly Swiss house, which um, which if you know any Swiss Swiss people or their aesthetic is um, this, they have this talent for making emptiness and sort of lack of material objects look incredibly rich and expensive and um, gaudy somehow. I don't know how they do it. And his house was like that. It, it, it's it, the, the void impressed you with its value. And we sat there, and the only decoration of his house was a picture of um, the previous pope and him together, um, and all these FIFA coasters everywhere that you had to put all your drinks and everything on. Was this a good use of American um, government prosecutorial resources to try to take down this international sporting organization? I mean, I think, you know, if you if you measure it just in resources, I think it probably paid for itself, right? I mean, the, the amount of money that the, gov- that the government has already recovered and plans to continue to recover is pretty large. Um, it's, I think it's somewhere around half a billion dollars at this point. Um, uh, so I think that, that it's probably covered itself, um, although I guess there's going to be a fund for victims to um, to claim some of that money. So FIFA has already claimed itself as a victim in one of the <laughs> incredible... Um, <laughs> legal pieces of a- acrobatics in history. They're Can I be a victim? Legal chutzpah. <laughs> Can I be a victim? Because I watched some some World Cup games that were disappointing. I mean, I would say that actually you, according to the definition of the government, you are a victim. If you've watched any soccer, you're a stakeholder. Um, but I think, you know, they sort of envisioned the victims of all this were sort of the, the, little, the little crying child in a developing country who doesn't have proper uh, uh, shoes to put on his feet to play the game. That's the way they envisioned it. But I think, you know, um, Americans who are angry the U.S. MNT didn't make the World Cup should also perhaps yeah, receive the, the, victim the, status. The, the problem with with that and FIFA's theory that those are, or that the U.S. government's belief that these are the true victims is that FIFA and all of these local confederations, all these local soccer officials like Jack Warner, particularly in CONCACAF, who ran CONCACAF with Chuck Blazer as his own personal piggy bank, um, these guys were skimming that money. That's the money that they were already taking away. So the irony of like giving that back to FIFA to redistribute to these confederations who are probably still behaving in all sorts of, of illegal ways is, uh, is pretty naive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is the problem, right? So there's a... Uh, something that people kept telling me about law enforcement people about how when you when you deal with what they consider to be criminal organizations, which is what they ultimately decided FIFA and all its its uh, dependent organizations were, were just a giant mafia organization, is that when you cut off the head, another head comes up and take, takes over its place. And that's that's the that's the legacy of FIFA. I mean, it's you get one corrupt person, and then the next guy is like, "Hold my frappe," yeah, while I take that, more money. 
That's right. I mean, look at look at Infantino, the new president, right? He's, he says, I'm going to clean things up. And his campaign promises are exactly like Sepp Blatter's, except larger, right? Instead of $1 million, I'll give you $5 million. And, you know, instead of a 32-team World Cup, um, I'll give you a 48-team World Cup. Well, all that is is just I'll generate more money and I'll spread that out more as patronage. And everyone will be happy because you'll just be taking baths and more money and you'll just and then and there'll be no complaints and you know i think the vote for the 2026 world cup united united the united bit of canada mexico and the u.s versus morocco the fact the u.s wins the united bid wins is probably a good thing in the sense that morocco is perhaps ill-prepared to do it but it's also an indication that ultimately despite the rancor of so many voters who are angry at the U.S. for its investigation and so many countries who don't like the Trump administration is an indication that what they really like is the green stuff. And they know that a United World Cup is going to bring way more money into their pockets. Ken, one last question, and, and that is like through all of this, through this investigation that was conducted by U.S. authorities that ensnared one of the top American soccer officials of all time, it kind of beggars belief that no one was able to stop it in the United States that American soccer executives didn't know about these shady marketing deals and the kind of bribery and other uh, illicit behavior that was going on in its own confederation, that it didn't raise eyebrows. Why should we believe that the United States wasn't more aware of what was going on and was just playing along because that's the belief of how you have to, to deal with these, with, with, with people in FIFA? I think the, the, the pattern we see with soccer is that there's a lot of people who love to be along for the ride, whether they want the money or they want the glory or they want the power. There's a lot of people who are willing to put aside what might be ethical issues because it benefits them personally. Um, and so you have sort of, you know, a community of people who take bribes and then you have a community of people who just don't want to look at it. They want to turn a blind eye. Sunil Gulati is someone who I think, um, no, a lot former of president of the U S soccer federation. That's right. And, um, uh, a very close friend of Chuck Blazer's. This is a guy who came up um, in youth soccer just a couple years behind Blazer, knew him, was protected by him, also was under the wing of a lot of the other people who built um, sort of contemporary American soccer. And um, because largely because of Blazer's help, ends up getting these increasingly prominent positions in this sport, culminating in the CONCACAF Executive Committee and then the um, and then U.S. Soccer Presidency and then ultimately the FIFA Executive Committee, which is now the um, FIFA Executive Council. Um, so he becomes incredibly powerful in the sport. Um, but the whole time he's or a big chunk of the time he's getting free office space from Blazer inside CONCACAF's Trump Tower offices. Um, he's sitting on these different committees thanks to, to Blazer and other people's help. And he's allegedly in a position where he has a fiduciary responsibility to look at the books. Um, and when CONCACAF um, the scandal of all their incredible financial abuses comes out. Reporters asked Sunil, you know, what, what's going on? Where's she supposed to look at these books? This is a guy, by the way, who teaches economics at Columbia University, um, a highly educated son of a mathematician. And they ask him, well, aren't you responsible for looking at these books? And he says, well, they were audited, so I just trusted they were okay. Um, I don't think that would fly in the corporate sector. You can't, that wouldn't, that wouldn't cut it. But somehow no one noticed when he said, well, they're audited, so I thought they were okay. No one ever looked at Blazer's contract and that includes Gulati. And so one of the impressions is that the people who are along for the ride didn't want to know. They just wanted to continue to enjoy the positions they had. Ken Bensinger is the author of Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. Ken, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, gentlemen.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And now it is time for After Balls. And I think we should name our After Ball after something, uh, you know, related to the sportocratic conversation that we just had, Josh. Let's do it. I read Ken Bensinger's book because I'm that kind of a host. I read the books. Um, there was a little passage in there where one of the IRS guys wanted to name the FIFA investigation because you got to give an investigation a name, right? Of course. He wanted to that's, call. That's like most of the fun of being exactly uh, a, a prosecutor, fed. being yeah. a fed of working on a case for like yeah. six years. Yeah. He wanted to call it Operation Own Goal. <laughs> I think Jean Va- Jean Claude Van Damme was in that one. I, that would be a good name for the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Better than United Passions. And so what happened uh, after Operation Own Goal was floated as an investigation? He took it to one of the uh, assistant U.S. attorneys on the case who rejected the notion out of hand, leaving no opening for debate. The soccer case would have no name. (laughs) What a buzzkill, this uh, unnamed AUSA. Seriously. I think it was like the the IRS guy was from California. The AUSA is New York. Clash of cultures. Yeah. Yeah. What else could could we have named it? Operation uh, shot out for a throw-in. Operation, it is not possible. That's good. That's good too. Really good. Yeah. All right, let's stick with Operation Own Goal for uh, for our purposes today. Stefan, what is your Operation Own Goal? Well, I just wanted to get you up to date on my vacation plans, Josh, for the summer. We're going to Iceland next month. Doing the full loop of the island, glaciers, waterfalls, volcanoes. I already knew that, but should I perform surprise? Sure. Wow. Some surprise. That's great. Yeah. Congratulations. But while we were picking the travel dates, I didn't look at the uh, World Cup schedule. So we won't be in Iceland during group play when we would have been guaranteed to see dentist slash coach Heimer Hallgrimson's first time World Cup qualifiers play. The team got off to a pretty good start without me being in Iceland. That 1-1 tie with Argentina, thanks to Lionel Messi's missed penalty and Iceland's indomitable Viking spirit. If they can beat Nigeria, get a point off of Croatia, and Argentina can beat Croatia, all of which is doable, Iceland would be through to the knockout round. But I still won't be able to watch Iceland on their home soil with all those happy Icelanders in the round of 16 or the quarterfinals. So I'm counting on them to make it to the semifinals at least so that I can have the most exciting vacationing foreigner viewing experience possible. This is really about me soaking up that local culture during the World Cup. Can't argue with that. How far did they make it in the Euros? Quarters. So they would need to get one step further. They made it to the gold medal game in handball. That's right. They won the silver. So they need to uh, just – imbibe the spirit of the Icelandic national I think they, they are team. fully capable of doing this. But I'm also stealing myself, Josh, for the possibility that all those Goodmansons and Sigurdsons will bow out valiantly before the semifinals. That doesn't mean I'm not going to watch the games, though. I need to watch the games. So I'm planning now for how to do that. I told Clara at Nordic Visitor, who was filling in for Thor, who helped us plan our trip, 
I told Clara about my plight and asked her for some suggestions for where to watch the semifinals and finals. Clara and the internet were very helpful. So on the day of the first semifinal, July 10th, we're going to be in Volsvolur in southern Iceland. I think I said that pretty well. There's a Buffalo Wild Wings there, right? There isn't. Population 900. Clara says that Café Selfos in our hotel will most likely broadcast the game. But I need a backup. And Gamla Fjosid, I totally butchered that, looks really promising. That means Old Cow House. It doesn't mean Buffalo Wild Wings. Close. Old Cow House. Old Cow House sounds really good, though. It's right below that volcanic glacier that erupted back in uh, 2010. Yeah. And if you're listening, Old Cow House, mark me down for the volcano soup, which the menu describes as a powerful, hearty meat soup. I'm looking forward to the party. Jalapeno poppers from the spirit world. All right. For the second semifinal on July 11th, we're going to be in a town that I'm not even going to try to pronounce. But here are some possibilities. I think the last one sounds most plausible. Sure. Don't you think? Yeah. All right. Clara says this could be tricky in that place. There really isn't any sports bar, she emailed me. My best guess is that the games will either be broadcasted at the gas station located in the village or at the Icelandair Hotel Klaustur. I need to follow up with Clara because there seem to be two gas stations there, the OB and the N1, and I don't know which one might be broadcasting the it game. seems like you should just go to some somebody's house. Could do that, too. Yeah, just knock on the yeah. door. Yeah, the gas station sounds pretty great, though. Yeah. That could be fun. Could be. Yeah. Um, Clara also didn't mention the restaurant Sistra Coffee, which looks promising, too. Our menu offers a wide variety of food, from pizzas and burgers to succulent steaks and fresh fish. Everyone should be able to find something that they like and to leave both full and happy. <laughs> the final is on July 15, and by then we'll be way up in northern Iceland. We're going to miss the Arctic Open Golf Tournament, which is later this week. And we're also going to miss Pancake Day, Pancake Day Festival. It's a big event up there. A lot of poor planning on this trip. I know. The World Cup final is going to be competing with motorcycle days, so poor planning on the part of FIFA, if you ask me. That's organized by the Motorbike Club Tian. It offers a diverse programming to suit all those who have a passion for motorbikes. It's going to siphon away a lot of people from the World Cup final. Clara says our hotel will be showing the game. If not, she recommends asking the hotel staff where we can go. The locals are very friendly and will help you find a place where you can watch the game. It is going to be awesome, Josh, to be among the locals in Laugarbaki when Iceland hoists the World Cup trophy. I will be thunderclapping through the endless day there. Uh, enjoy your part-time dentistry. That's going to be fun. Thanks. Josh, what's your operation own goal? So NBA draft coming up this week. Very excited. Um, last week, in even more exciting news, ESPN reported that the one-and-done rule could be gone from the NBA as soon as 2021, once again allowing the nation's best high school basketball players to go straight to the pros, just like LeBron James, Kobe Bryant, and Ndubi Ebi once did. Daryl Dawkins and Bill Willoughby are often thought of as the first guys to go prep to pro, uh, with both getting picked in the 1975 draft, two decades before Kevin Garnett restarted the trend in 1995. There's a guy who came 13 years before Dawkins and Willoughby, though. Uh, his name is Reggie Harding. 
He was taken with the 29th pick in the fourth round of the 62 draft by the Detroit Pistons. Harding was 19 years old. He was a seven-footer. He got picked out of Detroit Eastern High School, where he'd won three straight city titles. He was deemed ineligible to play in the NBA. And looking back um, at some of the contemporaneous reporting, nobody really explains it. They basically just say the league's board of governors decided to make a special ruling because he was coming straight out of high school just to postpone his entry to the league. They just didn't want him to They want him to sit out for a year. Sounds kind of familiar. The following year, UPI reported that the NBA failed to approve Harding's contract for a few months after he was arrested for having a gun in a Detroit bar and was charged with car theft, breaking and entering at a recreation building, and, quote, a morals offense. When Harding did finally make it to the NBA, he averaged 11 points and 10.5 rebounds per game at the age of 21 in 1963-64 and 12 points and 11.6 rebounds the next year. He would lose his spot in the NBA again in 1965, with the Akron Beacon Journal reporting that the following headlines had been written about Harding. Reg guilty of assault. Harding granted new trial. Reggie Harding arrested in break-in. Harding put on probation. Judge dismisses charges on Reggie. Reggie arrested for reckless driving. Harding accused as, quote, gunslinger. All-city cager held in theft. Pistons won't take Reggie back. A few years later, Harding ended up with the Indiana Pacers and the ABA. In his oral history of the league, Loose Balls, Terry Pluto quotes the Pacers general manager Mike Storen as saying with regard to Harding, he wouldn't go to practice. He was late for team flights. Once he said that he had to leave the team to go to his daughter's funeral, which we fell for hook, line, and sinker. Of course, he did not have a daughter. According to Storin, he also once held a gun to his teammate Jim Tweety Bird Rail's head in the middle of the night, saying, Tweety Bird, I hear you hate, and then a racial slur. Rail got Harding to give him the gun. Then a few minutes later, he woke up to find Harding holding the gun to his head again. Storin also claimed that Harding once said in a TV interview, if I had a gun, I'd shoot Mike Storin. The Pacers were the last pro basketball team Harding ever played for. In 1972, he was 30 years old and trying to overcome a years-long addiction to heroin. In September of that year, a friend of Harding's named Carl Scott slapped Harding twice in the face, which led Harding to slap him back. Scott came back with a gun and shot Harding in the head, killing him. Before he died, Harding reportedly said, Why? Why? Man, you shot me. A two-part Detroit Free Press series published after his death illustrated Harding's extremely difficult upbringing, how he was sensitive about being given up for adoption, and how the early criminal charges against him were overblown. His wife told the newspaper he hated authority. It's deep in his childhood. That's all I could tell about it. If the Pistons would tell him to wear a shirt and tie, he would show up in a turtleneck. It was more than that, too. All those other guys had been to college, and Reggie kept harping on that, that they thought they were better than he was. After the games, he would cry sometimes and say, I just don't belong. And he would go back to the pool hall with the guys and stay out all night with them. They were the guys he grew up with. He felt he was going to the top and he would take them with him. But that storyline omits some important information about Reggie Harding. In his 2009 biography of the Supremes' Florence Ballard, Peter Benjaminson reported that Harding had allegedly raped Ballard at knife point after a sock hop in 1960. The same year, the 18-year-old Harding would be arrested on morals charges for having sex with a 15-year-old. Ballard's fellow Supreme, Mary Wilson, 
would say that the rape ate away at Flo's insides. She couldn't handle it. She needed professional help, but never got it. Ballard would become an alcoholic, and she'd die of cardiac arrest in 1976. The character of Effie White in Dreamgirls was based on Ballard's life. Jennifer Hudson, who won an Oscar for playing that role, said in an interview when the movie came out, Florence's story was actually good news for me because it made me angry. I really felt like Effie was Florence's voice, and this was her fan's way of getting her justice or having it in the way they would have liked to see it end. Wow. I mean, the connections there are kind of crazy. Yeah, uh, the free press series, which if people have newspapers.com, which is, I think, my favorite website and Stefan's favorite website, um, it's really, really in-depth for a newspaper series, just in kind of doing archival research from the 70s. You rarely see that kind of magazine-like journalism. It has a lot of details about Harding's life and death. But as I said at the end, even you know that kind of comprehensive story left out a really important piece that only came out after Harding died and after Florence Ballard died. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. You've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.